Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to discuss fair and open testing. Would it be impossible to believe that I earned four college degrees? Most would answer no to that question. No, it's not impossible. What if I told you I earned four college degrees without ever taking the SAT, ACT, or GRE, which is the graduate record exam for entrance into graduate school? Well, it's the truth. As a New York City public school student who earned good grades but had no plans for college, I never sat for the SAT. When I was rejected by the Marine Corps, the City University of New York colleges only required my high school transcript. After all, is not what I did over four years of schooling a better measure of how I might perform in college than a morning or afternoon exam? My first guest this afternoon will lend his expertise to this very question. My first guest, Robert Bob Schaefer, has served as Public Education Director of Fair Test for the National Center for Fair and Open Testing since its founding in 1985. Prior to the creation of Fair Test, Mr. Schaefer was an editorial writer at the NBC TV affiliate in Boston and research director of the Massachusetts Legislators Joint Committee on Human Services and Elderly Affairs. He also worked for several years as a research associate at the Education Research Center of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where he was both an undergraduate and graduate student. Among his publications are Standardized Tests and Teacher Competence, and co-authoring Standing Up to the SAT. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Jefferson. Hey, I appreciate you coming on. Um, what What is test optional admissions? What does that mean? Well, test optional admissions is a policy that's now in effect at more than 800 accredited bachelor degree granting colleges and universities across the U.S. And what it means is that students can go to school there and pretty much the way you went back in the day. That means that you are admitted based on your high school record without having to take either the SAT or the ACT. And the schools listed on our website, fairtest.org, um, on the test optional list, either admit all or many of their applicants in that manner, no test required. Okay. Why does FairTest lead the test optional admissions movement? We lead the test optional admissions movement because massive amounts of research show that test optional admissions is a better way to build high-quality, diverse classes of new undergraduates than relying on test scores. Most recently, earlier this year, a massive study was done of 33 schools with test optional policies, and it found that those students who were admitted without submitting their test scores did as well or better than their peers who took the test. And, mm. in fact, that how well you do in high school, where your grades include lots of tests, teacher-made tests, is a far stronger predictor of academic success than is sitting and filling in bubbles once 
Saturday morning on the ACT or SAT. Hmm. Now, is this kind of like a shortcut for colleges? Do, do college admissions offices need standardized exams like the SAT and ACT to evaluate applicants from a variety of schools? Well, actually, the SAT and ACT are the shortcut colleges use. Um, mm-hmm. They believe, because they've been told by the very wealthy testing companies that sell the ACT and SAT, that these tests create a common yardstick to adjust for the differences among schools. But independent researchers have found that despite the differences between schools and difficulty, and indeed despite the differences in courses that students may take at the same school, that high school grades, whatever their weaknesses, are a better predictor of how well you'll do in college um, and, and whether you'll graduate than is any standardized test. So if colleges that adopt test-optional policies, like those listed at fairtest.org, it's not a shortcut for them. It means they have to look at applicants as more than a number. They have to look at them as a, a portfolio of characteristics, um, including what they've done in high school, the rigor of the courses they've taken, what they've done in the way of extracurricular activities, community service, family background, academic interests, special skills, a host of characters, characteristics. And that enables them to build a, a class, an incoming class, with wide range of skills and diverse interests. Now, for a let, let's take it one of the Ivies. I spoke to a, the dean of admissions at Cornell University uh, about a couple of years ago, and he said he he receives over nine thousand applicants and may only have nine hundred slots. Uh, do you still believe this? You know, the, the the time to go through transcripts is is. Is, is, is something they're capable of doing in the window of time they have to select students? Yes, uh, and it's been proven time and time again by highly selective test-optional schools. In fact, of the 800 schools on our list, 150 are listed in the top tier as among the most selective in their respective categories. It includes schools like Bates and Bowden and Mount Holyoke and Smith um, and uh, Wake Forest in, in North Carolina. Schools that get many, many more applicants than they have spaces to fill, and they have built systems to evaluate the full richness of a student's background rather than just giving them a numerical score based on how well they did on, on a test and maybe their GPA. Mm-hmm. Now, now let's look into um, the SAT and ACT. What exactly is wrong with those tests? Well, both tests and at schools that require a test, either the SAT or ACT is accepted at any of those schools. If they require a test, that will either either test will suffice. Is that they are fast-paced, multiple-choice games with a premium on strategic guessing that rewards a particular type of skill, a skill that can be improved through high-priced coaching courses, so that well-to-do parents can buy their kids the equivalent of test prep steroids to boost their scores uh, and help them get into the more competitive schools. Beyond that, the SAT independent research shows that it underpredicts for females, for applicants whose home language is not English, and for older students returning to school, non-traditional applicants. Those three groups are a majority of students going to colleges nowadays, and yet the test underpredicts their capacity. So the test we view, the, the SAT and ACT, as unnecessary in the admissions process, 
because they are inaccurate predictors, they are biased tools, they are susceptible to high-priced coaching. To to add a little validation to to what you say, actually, everything you're saying is valid. I'm just playing devil's advocate when I can. Uh, But to add validation to it, I was, before I went into my doctorate program at Seton Hall University, I refused to take the MAT, which was required for entrance. I actually, I actually asked them if I could uh, not take the the uh, MAT, which is a Miller Analogies test, and they said no, I had to take it. So I reluctantly took it um, without prepping for it, and probably scored lower than than my cohort to all of those who were accepted that year, and they made me take it again. But to kind of validate what you stated, I ended up being the second person out of that cohort to finish my dissertation. <laughs> you know, so. It's hard to understand why any professional admissions officer believes that a test you take in a couple hours on a Saturday morning tells them more about what you can do academically than the work that you've done for, if you're applying for an undergraduate, three, three and a half years of undergraduate classes and projects and essays and portfolios and teacher-made tests. Or if you're applying to graduate school, they have three-plus years of actual college performance. To look at, and that is so much richer a picture of a student's knowledge, skills, and abilities than any test possibly can be. Now, do you believe the the lobbying machine behind these test prep companies and these uh, uh, publica- publishers are stronger than the voice of reason that you're you're presenting? Well, indeed, uh, the, the testing companies and the test prep uh, businesses do lobby quite strongly. But I think the major reason so many colleges continue to use the test are twofold. One, inertia. They've always used it. And two, they think it gives them an aura of prestige. And that underneath the surface, maybe the real reason so many schools continue requesting test scores is because when they get the scores from applicants, they get a host of demographic information that they use for the activity that is, in fact, most important in the college admissions world now, which is called yield management, which is finding enough tuition-paying bodies to to fill your seats in the fall. Not Mm -hmm. all schools are like Cornell, where they get a massive number of applicants for each slot. Many are um, striving to, to keep their seats filled, and the data they get from the college board that makes the SAT or ACT Incorporated that makes the other test, the ACT, uh, helps them identify students um, who are going to be able to fill those classes and pay the freight. That's a very interesting fact. I actually never thought of that that angle, the fact that there are so many colleges out there and that ultimately it is a business and they have bills to pay. Well, in Um, in fact, it's, it's a tougher business right now than it's been in the last 10 years because the baby boom echo generation has moved through college and the number of students graduating from high school has declined over the last several years and will continue to decline for the next several. So there will be fewer kids available to apply to the college. And at the same time, more new colleges are opening. There are all kinds of online higher education opportunities. And many existing schools are increasing their potential enrollment. So that is a very competitive world. I mean, it, unfortunately... The public and, and some of the media, like the New York Times, get fixated on you know 20 name-brand colleges, you and I could name it in, in about two minutes, mm-hmm. uh, that are extraordinarily competitive and, and reject 9 out of 10 or even a higher percentage. But the vast majority of colleges in this country accept the
the vast majority of their applicants. And come next month, May, a number of colleges will be begin posting the fact that they still have vacancies for the fall entering class. And they will be good colleges that people have heard of and are, are quite respectable. Mm-hmm. Um, now, will the new versions of the test, which have been getting a lot of press lately, uh, which is expected to be administered in 2016, uh, will it fix the weaknesses that you've identified in the test? The new version of, of the SAT, which won't be in, um, administered for the first time until the spring of 2016, from everything that's been said about it, is cosmetic surgery. It is mm-hmm. a marketing change designed to stem two serious problems for the owners of, of the SAT. One, in the last nine years since the SAT was last overhauled by the addition of a mandatory uh, writing section, including an essay, um, the ACT has overtaken the SAT as the nation's most widely administered college admissions test. And that, So number one is now number two, the SAT. And the okay. second thing that's happened in that same nine-year uh, nine period is that 97 more colleges and universities have dropped their test score requirements and gone test optional. So that's a huge threat to the market, and most of the changes that were announced for the SAT that will be administered for the first time in 2016 change its appearance to look more like the ACT. They're Mm. eliminating the guessing penalty, just like the ACT. They're uh, no longer including esoteric words, just like the ACT. They're going to link it more closely to the high school curriculum, just like the ACT. They're going to make the essay optional, not mandatory, just like the ACT. It's a repackaging on the surface uh, to make it more saleable, but it doesn't deal with the fundamental purpose of the test. I mean, look, the, the role of an admissions exam, a good admissions exam, should be to predict college success accurately, fairly, and in a way that's not susceptible to, to coaching. The SAT fails on all those counts, and none of the changes to the SAT address those problems. Wow. Well, this is excellent information, and I look forward to uh, the next several minutes of our conversation. But at this time, it's time to take a short break. But stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion of fair and open testing with my special guest, Bob Schaefer. Bob, what happens to when colleges and universities do not use standardized admissions tests, especially when they switch from having used it to not using it? Well, there's a very good history about that, and it's been studied very in-depth by academics. First thing that happens is they get a tremendous increase in applications. High school students, particularly in this test-obsessed K-12 arena that we've come to, to deal with in the last decade because of No Child Left Behind and, and state testing programs, kids are very appreciative that a school is going to look at them as more than a score, and that attracts lots more applicants. The mm. new applicant pool in almost all cases is more diverse, more competitive academically, and brings a variety of different talents. And the diversity that, that is added to the pool is race, is gender, is geography, it's academic interest, 
It's outside talent. It's different perspective. A number of schools, for example, uh, like Bates and Maine or, or Wake Forest in North Carolina, have found an increase in rural applicants when they go test optional because rural kids generally don't go to schools and in communities where they have the op- opportunity for test prep centers, even mm-hmm. if, if their parents could afford it. Uh, but, you know, the, the increase in African-Americans, Latinos, New Asian immigrants, Native Americans, um, and other groups that have been historically excluded from higher education is significant. So the, the data show that going to test optional admissions improves both equity and academic excellence simultaneously. Wow. Well, wow, we really covered uh, the standardized test with regards to college admissions. However, there's a lot of noise being made now by the tests and increased testing that is accompanying not only No Child Left Behind, but the added um, demands of Common Core. So why are so many families, especially where I live here on Long Island and, and elsewhere, protesting the volume and uses of standardized tests in general? Well, as a Long Island kid, and I went to high school in, in Port Jefferson, um, I really enjoyed seeing the uprising by parents in Long Island, parents and educators and community activists in Long Island and in the city and upstate as well, uh, saying enough is enough to high state testing overkill. The U.S. has gone testing crazy um, in the last 15 years. It's, you know, the feds tripled the amount of federally mandated standardized testing with no child left behind under President Bush, though it was a, a bipartisan initiative. Um, and states have layered on ever more tests on top of that. And the new common core state standards that many states have adopted will add even further tests. Yet the evidence shows this isn't helping. Uh, no Child Left Behind has been in effect now for the better part of 12 years, and the data show that the United States is making less progress in its schools towards the two laudable goals of No Child Left Behind, improving overall academic performance and narrowing gaps between racial groups. We're making, we made less progress under No Child Left Behind than we did in the decade before it became law. So testing ever more is not a way to improve our schools. It just drives people crazy. It dumbs down teacher and teaching and learning. It narrows curriculum. In the worst cases, it makes transform schooling into little more than test prep. And finally, parents are, are fed up. They're standing up. So are teachers. So are principals. And protesting and saying bye, in many cases, boycotting the test administration by holding huge demonstrations. There was one uh, couple in, uh, in, in Port Jefferson Station um, and uh, marches in New York City and you know, rowdy assemblies uh, in, in uh, Buffalo and in Rochester where parents were letting their elected officials know this is the wrong direction, stop it, turn it around. Hmm. And, and, and I'm actually here in the midst of it. In fact, uh, in the school district where I work, uh, the teachers are often, uh, a part of those rallies. You know, they're, 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 they're leading the charge and they're sending out their email blasts. They get out there, let your voice be heard. Um, I would actually challenge that the, the, the start of it or the simmering began, uh, with 
much earlier, back in 1983, soon after A Nation at Risk. Right. Because because in that document, it actually states that increased um, testing and oversight is recommended among the many, many recommendations, uh, many of them which are good recommendations. But in addition to that, they did they did get the ball rolling with with the testing. It, it just it just it's become outrageous over the last 15 years or so. I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there have been several waves of standardized test uh, increase and pushback. And in the 80s, in the wake of uh, the, the, the public, that publication, the number of states implemented what they called basic skills testing. And, you know, that crested in the late 80s, and then there was a pushback in schools. Many schools moved away from bubble-in tests to performance-based assessment where they looked at what kids really knew and could do, and they looked at the quality of the work they were doing in the classroom and made judgments for uh, assessment and accountability from that. And then in, in throughout the 90s, there was a push for national testing that was defeated, uh, but then came, uh, actually, the, the key event was the unfortunate uh, attack on the United States in, in September uh, 2001, and because that created the, the climate of we all have to work together in which Democrats and Republicans foolishly passed No Child Left Behind, which by itself nearly tripled the volume of mandatory testing. Previously, federal law required states to test once in elementary, once in middle school, and once in high school in um, reading and math. And now the requirement is once in third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grades, once in high school in both reading and math, and once in elementary, middle, and high school in science. So a huge increase in testing. And to get ready, get kids ready for that, even more tests were, were implemented by states and districts. And in fact, I remember in the 80s, I, w- I was still a K-12 student, um, I remember the one and only test I had to take was they called the Gates test. It was an eighth grade test. And you, they try to scare us by saying, you have to pass this test or you can't move on to the next grade. Mm-hmm. And, um, at that time we weren't so test obsessed. In fact, it was a, a strange thing to have to take a test, all of us having to take the same test. We weren't even in high school yet. And, um, I went to very good schools in, in mm-hmm. Queens. So, uh, we didn't even prep. We just took the test, you know, we did fine. Um, because, and we were, we also weren't in that climate yet. We weren't in that create this crazy climate we're in now. Um, and I remember actually in high school, take, we came in one morning and they said, Oh, you're going to take this practice SAT. It was actually the PSAT. We had never heard of it. And, and we literally never heard of it. Came in that morning. They said, we're going to take this practice SAT. We kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, okay. So we took the test and went on about our day without even a second thought. Whereas now, even the PSAT has become a, 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 a big deal, which was a surprise to me because I, I, I still thought of it as a practice test. And now I'm finding out how much weight is being put on the PSATs. In fact, if you can speak to that briefly, I'd yeah, appreciate I, I, it. Well, yeah, I often tell similar stories about my, my own experience going to high school in what was then rural Long Island, uh, which was before your time, before you were in school. But when I took the SAT, um, and that was in the era when the legal drinking age was 18 and you had to look 16 in New York State, <laughs> The only way you prepared for the SAT was being sober the night before. Um, <laughs> there was no such thing as test prep. You went in and took the test, and the PSAT was a little game you took. Um, mm-hmm. Now, because of the consequences attached to exams and, and the belief that they're very important, there are huge amounts of test prep, multi-million dollar businesses like Princeton Review and Kaplan 
And mm-hmm. I, I urge people to go into bookstores or to look online and, and search for test prep materials. There's an entire wall in a bookstore, and there's millions of links for mm. SAT prep online. It's, it's frightening the amount of money and time that is diverted from real education to boosting scores. But there's, you know, at some level there's a reason. The PSAT is now the test used for National Merit Scholarships. Wow. And kids whose parents can buy them coaching and get a higher score are more likely to win those prestigious and valuable awards. And many schools offer scholarships to the kids they've admitted who score high on the SAT so they can claim high SAT score averages in the college guidebook. And that, too, reinforces the effort to prep your kids and, and you know, spend $900 on a coaching course and get a $3,000 a year scholarship. A great mm. investment, but a perversion of education. Wow. It's, it's, see, see, that's my concern is that the, the noise is not loud enough. Until we have national protests, yeah. the noise is just not loud enough. So we're going to continue to see that wall of test prep books. We're going to continue to see this millions being earned um, with people who are trying to buy an advantage. And I just think the noise needs, I think what you're doing is important and needs to continue, but I think the noise needs to get louder because we're, we're speaking based on facts. We're using research and empirical data, data to back up our approach. Um, our being that I agree with fair test. I, I, I spoke at a national conference about this uh, earlier this spring. And, and what I said is if facts were what mattered the most, we would have won long ago. And if morality were what matters the most, we would have won a long time ago. The truth is that educational testing is not an educational issue. It is a political issue. Mm. And unless and until people get more involved in politics and take their concerns to the elected officials who are imposing these ridiculous tests and attaching inappropriate consequences to them, there won't be change. I mean, here's what the public opinion polling shows. There's been a number of polls recently. The closer you are to the classroom, the more people think that standardized testing, there's too much and it's misused. Teachers believe that almost uniformly, so do administrators. Parents of public school children agree. Yet the people who make public policy in this country, um, the elite inside the Beltway in Washington, and in Albany and in other state capitals around the country, they're still true believers in standardized tests. So we need to bridge that disconnect. And what Fair Test and a number of other groups have done this year is to organize a, a thing called uh, Testing Resistance and Reform Spring. It's online at resistthetest.org. And it's a national effort to coordinate groups and to make people know, help people know everything that's going on around the country to protest high-stakes testing. And it's really working. You know, where you are in New York is one of the epicenters. But, you know, teachers went on strike in, in, in uh, Chicago around testing. Teachers refused to administer tests in Seattle. There's been opt-out campaigns probably in every state. There's been demonstrations and rallies and town meetings. We're ratcheting up the pressure. And now with the electoral season beginning, where <clears throat> members of Congress and, and state legislators are being elected, people need to take those concerns to the meetings where their elected officials are and let them know that there's too much testing, and if you don't get rid of it, you're not going to be reelected. 
Yeah. And, and, uh, there, there will be pushback, but, uh, but, but the effort is definitely worth it. Just to give an example, the former, uh, commissioner of education for, or commissioner of school commissioner for New York City, Joel Klein, uh, is now paid as a, um, a lobbyer for one of these companies that are benefiting so greatly from the testing. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. yeah no, and, I mean, Joel, Joel Klein is a classic example. He's a corporate lawyer. He has no particular experience in the classroom, but he is part of that, this set of elites. And, and, and Arnie Duncan, the secretary, U.S. secretary of education is another one who tries to impose notions about how to improve schools with which they've never had an iota of experience and which the data show won't work. And you mm-hmm. know, it's part of their ideology or, or, you know, or their corporate funders. And you know, what the way to push back about that is massive civil protest. Yeah. Now, in fact, one of the, as my show opens, one of the things I mention or one of the reasons I started this show is because of the disconnect, which you touched on between the policymakers, which is your, you know, politicians, um, the researchers, which is those of us who, who actually know what the data shows and the practitioners, which is the teachers in the classroom. Um, but we can go on for days about this. We are, we are of like mind and I don't think that's necessarily fair to my listeners, but, mm-hmm. um, it, it is important information. Um, we have been speaking with Bob Schaefer, public education director of Fair Test for the National Center for Fair and Open Testing. To learn more about Fair Test, visit their site at www.fairtest.org. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Jefferson, for the opportunity. Hey, anytime. Uh, stay tuned because our next guest works in the trenches with testing daily.